Our equip strategy is all about helping all people become mature believers of Christ. And what we've been doing um, this summer in this six-week series is learning more about the Bible. We're learning how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible. We're learning the overarching themes of the Bible, how the Bible is organized, the cultural and contextual aspects of the Bible. And tonight, we're going to start the New Testament. This is part one of the New Testament, and Pastor Mark will be with us next week for part two as, as we continue this. We think this is important that to become mature believers, we have to get to the point where we're just not dependent on Pastor Mark and the teachers in the church to teach and preach to us, but we have to be able to feed ourselves from the Word of God. So that's what we're after tonight. You know, my favorite place in Chicago hands down, is the Art Institute of Chicago. I love the Art Institute even more than I love Giordano's Pizza. Now, any Giordano's fans in here? Yeah, testify, right? Oh, man. I'm convinced Giordano's Pizza will be served at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if you're taking notes, do not write that down. I want Pastor Mark saying, what was this all about? No, but I, I love the Art Institute. I love, you know, my wife and I have spent hours there. What we like most about it is they have world-class collections of both Impressionist and modern artists. And, and my wife, Glennis, and I, we have spent hours there among the Monets and the Picassos and the Van Goghs and the Matisses and the Magritte's and, and the Gogans and, and the Degas, all the Degas and the dancers, you know, and the, and the acrobats and the Renoirs. They have, they have these Monets. They have a, a, a one Monet gallery, and it's got the study of, 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 a, of the haystacks. I don't know if you've ever seen any of Monet's haystack pictures, but they're just so fascinating. And, 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 I, and I just love this stuff. I love Jackson Pollock. A lot of people think Jackson Pollock just makes a bunch of scribbles. I love it. I think it's beautiful art, you know. And I just love going to the Art Institute and especially wandering through the modern wing and the Impressionist galleries. Um, the Chagall windows, if you've ever seen those, are gorgeous, dark, cobalt blue windows that tell a story. And it's, it's just gorgeous. But my favorite, my all-time favorite at the Art Institute is this right here. Yeah. Oh, my. Okay, maybe you recognize it here. Anybody familiar with this? A Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte by Georges Seurat. Now, how many of you have seen this before? And how many of you are going to say, I just appreciate fine art and impressionism, and I'm familiar with this as one of the great impressionist works of all time? And how many of you will say, oh, yeah, I saw that in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Georges Seurat painted this entire thing with little dots and dashes and brush strokes with a technique called pointillism. And this picture is fairly large. It's seven feet tall and it's ten feet wide. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a good size. And I like, when I visit the gallery that this hangs in, I like to walk. And incidentally, this gallery, this painting like sucks all the air out of the room. I mean, it does. It, it just dominates that room. People don't even notice what else is on the walls around that. Because you walk in this gallery, and it's like right there in front of you. And it's just beautiful. And it's just, just fascinating. You know, it took him over two years to paint it. Over two years to paint it. Um, but I like to walk right up to it. And, and at the Art Institute, you can get, I mean, you can get right on top of the pieces of art. 
right up to it and look at all those individual dots, those little points, those little brush strokes, and think thousands and thousands and thousands of this of these went into painting it. And, you know, he would go and, and spend time on Le Grand Jatte and studying the landscape and studying the people that were there or the people that he imagined, you know, should be there. And, and he, did, he did countless um, preliminary sketches and drawings and samples of people. And, no, I don't like that one. I like this one. And in a period of over two years, this is the masterpiece that came out. But if all I did when I went there was just get my nose right up on that canvas and look at all these dots. As fascinating as that is, and it is fascinating, if I never stepped back and sat on the bench and just looked at the whole thing, I'd be missing the beauty of it. I would be missing so much of it, so much of it. See, all those dots and dashes work together to create an amazing masterpiece. And I want to be able to appreciate that masterpiece, both in the detail... You know, I want to look at those dots and think, boy, back in the late 1800s, he was actually had a little brush and he was doing that. And then I want to be able to step back and see the beauty of the whole work. Such it is with the Word of God. Um, I find that if we only look at the Bible, and, and tonight we're focusing on the New Testament, but if we only look at the New Testament, for example, as a scattering of verses that we hear randomly and we memorize and and, you know, we, we put on Facebook with little pictures of mountains and water and forests and things. And, or if we think of, of, of the New Testament just in terms of five-minute um, devotionals, which I think are great. If you, you do devotionals, God bless you, keep doing that. Or if we just think of the New Testament in terms of, you know, what we consume on a Sunday morning from sermons— I think we're missing a great deal of it, and it's kind of like putting your nose up against that surat. You've seen all these dots, and it's fascinating, and it's pretty, but you've got to step back, and you've got to have an understanding of the whole picture. There is an amazing, phenomenal collection of books and letters in the New Testament, and I want to appreciate that. I want us to appreciate that. So, tonight... We're going to start our first part on the New Testament. I'm going to be talking about um, the structure and the historical context of the New Testament tonight to hopefully gain a, a better understanding of the overview. What is the New Testament all about? If you would, tonight is going to be the 30,000-foot view of the New, New Testament, of the New Testament. First, I want to go back to the grand narrative that um, that Ryan Mobley spoke about three weeks ago when we were just kicking off this series. Brian, uh, uh, Ryan, Ryan was talking about the overall grand narrative of the entire Bible. And you can see it on the screen in back of me. It, it was made up of, uh, if you think of it as a play, four acts, right? Creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And in four words, that encapsulates the whole Bible. It really does. Now, the first two of those, creation and fall, were pretty much covered in the Old Testament. The second two, the third and the fourth parts, are alluded to and prophesied about in the Old Testament, but they're actualized, realized in the New Testament. And we want to see that tonight. And those last two ones are redemption, you see them, and restoration. Redemption is the first of those two. A loving creator was determined to turn the evil and the suffering that we had created 
into something good that would be to his ultimate glory. That's what drove the creator. So this third movement of the great narrative shows God implementing a master plan for redeeming his world and rescuing fallen sinners. In the person of Jesus Christ, God himself comes to renew the world and restore his people. And the grand narrative, that whole grand scheme climaxes with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. And then, and then that, last, that last one, restoration. The story doesn't end with redemption, right? Um, God has promised to renew the whole world. And the Bible gives us a peek into this glorious, glorious future. We see it in, in, what, in the New Testament, right? Jesus talks about it in the Gospels, and then we see the book of Revelation talks about it. Um, the restoration of all things will take place in two ways. Two ways. First, Christ will return to judge sin and evil. And he will usher in righteousness and peace. That's the first thing. We could stop right there, right? Can you imagine a world of righteousness and peace that we get to dwell in forever? But second, God will purge this physical world as well of evil, and the redeemed will live eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we're looking forward to in the future. So as we look at this grand narrative behind us, we see that the first three stages have already taken place, and we are living in this redemptive age, and we look forward to, we look forward to the final act, the final movement of this grand narrative, um, that of restoration. Let's talk about the eras, eras I got to pronounce that well, the eras of the New Testament. You see them behind me. We talked about the same sort of thing with the Old Testament. The New Testament historic errors can be broken up into three pieces, gospels, church, and missions. And it's interesting when you take a look at um, this same typographic that we used a couple weeks ago for the Old Testament, the amount of time it spanned in the Old Testament, thousands of years, thousands of years. In fact, the, you know, the Bible isn't spread out evenly chronologically because just in the first very, very few chapters of Genesis, we see a couple thousand years take place. And then God gets on with the story, right? Well, we get to the New Testament. The, whole, the, the entire historic span of the New Testament covers about 60 years. And, and we'll talk about that in a bit from, from the Gospels through the end of the book of Acts. It's, it's about a 60-year period. But what an amazing 60 years they were, huh? Yeah, God redeemed the fallen race of humanity, and he established his church on the earth in those 60 years. Remarkable. Probably the most remarkable 60 years in the history of, 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 of mankind. So let's go. I want to break down each of, these, each of these eras, these historic eras. The first one is the gospel era. If I can summarize it, basically this very short Jesus comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of a Savior, and he offers salvation and the true kingdom of God. Some people accept, some people reject. He is born, he grew, he ministered, and he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he ascended back into heaven. Now, the gospel era, this first era, is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about 30 years roughly 30-year span is what it makes up. So it makes up about half of this historic window of the New Testament. We can break down the gospel era into four different parts. 
That's how we can attack it. The first is the early life of Jesus from birth up into his baptism. The second is his early ministry. The third is his latter ministry. And then the fourth piece is his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And there's a great portion of this that, you know, looking at just this one, pretty much this one week in history, and even a few days, takes up a good part of this. The first part. The first part is Jesus' early life. Now, I'm going to get, my, my point tonight is to give us an overarching view of this story, the arc of the story of the New Testament. So I'm going to run through this fairly quickly, and I hope you don't feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. But I also hope I see a lot of heads nodding because I, I, th- I think you understand this. I just want to put this in the big picture. So we start with the, the, uh, the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit of a virgin named Mary. And Jesus is born. Jesus, the Son of God, is born to Mary in the town of Bethlehem. And they, they have a brief excursion down in Egypt to escape um, Herod, who wanted to kill them. They returned back to Israel when it was safe, and they went to Nazareth, which was their hometown. There Jesus became a carpenter, learned the trade of a carpenter, and and he grew up a fairly, um, for all we know, pretty uh, normal life from childhood, except for the fact that he never sinned. And and all of you who have raised children, you know that's a miracle right there. Um, All of you who were children, you know that as well. so by the time he's 30 years old, um, his cousin, John the Baptist, is out preaching and calling the nation of Israel to repentance, and Jesus goes to be baptized. John baptizes him, and he comes out, and we see this extraordinary situation, this extraordinary situation. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes out of the water. God the Father, his voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and, and, and descends on Jesus. This is the first time we see all three parts of the triune Godhead. And they are there all at one time, revealing themselves, manifesting themselves to mankind. Um, after that, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. He's tempted 40 days by Satan. And after that, Jesus comes out sinless. And now he's ready to start his earthly ministry. So that takes us to the next part of this gospel era, and that is the early ministry of Jesus Christ. He has two aspects to his ministry. The first is he's the Messiah, Um, or as the word translated in the New Testament says, the Christ. The Christ means the Messiah. Second, Jesus challenges people to live a life of genuine righteousness, not just external righteousness, a genuine righteousness that is internal. If you think, just an example, just a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great manifesto, and, and how he talks about this heart and the spirit, and the heart that's inside of person more important than the actions on the outside. And this is his message, and he validates his message with all these miracles. And people love it, don't they? They love it. People flock to Jesus. And this initial acceptance by the crowd is very, very encouraging. And most of Jesus' ministry in the early part of his ministry took place around Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to get into the geography of the Bible, but I do think this is something that Christians need to have good understandings of when we say Jerusalem or Galilee or 
wherever. You know, there's a reason the Bible talks about places, and, and I think it behooves us, it behooves us a bit to kind of get a general understanding in our mind where all these places are. Just if, if I talk to you about St. Louis, you know, 100 miles south of here, if I said, you know, Chicago, 200 miles north of here, and I, and I think we need to have at least that general understanding. But Jesus' early years of ministry were basically around Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Israel. At that time, the Romans had it divided up into regions, and, and it was in the province of Judea, or Judea. And Jerusalem was, was about at the top of the Dead Sea, except due west from the top of the Dead Sea. So, go to the next part of, of this breakdown, is Jesus' latter ministry, the second part of his ministry. And, and, and what we find when we look at the second part of Jesus' ministry is his popularity didn't, didn't last it didn't. The religious leaders start getting um, profoundly jealous of him, and they're stirring up animosity towards Jesus. And and this results in a progression in Jesus' ministry pattern. He he changes his ministry pattern a bit here in the second half. He begins to focus more attention on the mounting opposition from the religious leaders, and you hear him speaking out to and against the religious leaders warning them of the seriousness of their attitude. And at the same time, he began setting more and more time aside for direct ministry to his disciples in the latter half of his ministry. And what he's doing is preparing them for the time when he's going to be gone and the ministry is going to fall onto them directly. He also begins challenging the multitudes that are following him and he encourages them to count the cost to count the cost of what, what they're doing. And um, though he travels a lot in the second part of his ministry, Jesus did travel quite a bit in the second part, most of the time he was based out of Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the north bank of the Sea of Galilee. So if you think of Israel being this long, and I've heard some, some people say that Israel is like if you take Massachusetts and flip it up on its side, it's about the size of it. You think of Jerusalem down in the southern part with the Dead Sea. Do you see that? And up here is the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum was up there. So that's how Jesus' geography kind of changed um, during the second half of his ministry. Finally, the last part of, of the gospel era is where everything comes to head. You know, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. We know what happened during that Passion Week. We know how Jesus came into the city and everyone was excited. The streets are filled and they're cheering and praising him. And, and you know, by Friday, they're crying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And that's how we wrap up this story of Jesus. He's crucified, as we know. He's laid in a tomb on Friday night. He spends parts of three days in the tomb. And on the third day, he came back to life. Praise God. Yeah. And that whole piece wraps up then with Jesus spending time. He sees his disciples, gives them instructions, and finally he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. So that's the gospel era. That's the first part of this historic story, this narrative that, that we see in the New Testament. The second part of this narrative is the church era. The church era. The church era is found in the first twelve chapters of the book of Acts, and um, in summary, very brief summary, Peter, shortly after the ascension of Jesus, is used by God along with the other apostles to establish the church, God's next major plan for man. That's the summary of what the church era is all about. 
like we did with the gospel era, we can break this down into four parts. And, and the four parts we break down into are creation, which is the birth of the church, growth, which is organization of the church, persecution, where we see the first Christian martyr, and, and then transition, where we transition out of this, this Jewish sect into something much, much bigger. The first one, creation. The church was born in Jerusalem. The church of Jesus Christ was born in Jerusalem. Um, and he told his disciples, if you remember, he told his disciples to stay there and wait. Wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, and he told them that they would be his witnesses in Ju- Jerusalem, which is where they were, in all of Judea and Samaria. Judea was the province they were in. Samaria is, this is my map over here. Samaria is up here. Judea is down here. Just, just north of there. And, and, and finally, to the very ends of the, ends of the earth, the rest of the world, he said. And then he went into heaven. Well, you know, while they were waiting, they're gathered in the house, right? And we know the story. This sound like a violent rushing wind. It doesn't say a wind blew, does it? It says the sound of a violent rushing wind. And there were flames of fire that, w- that were on their heads. Now, when I was growing up in Sunday school, I can still see this picture. And it shows this, this room and all these guys with beards and robes. And, and they're just kind of sitting there, you know. And there's this little, little tiny flame here. And I don't know, I think it's like there's a curtain blowing in the window or something. Folks, it said there was a violent sound of a violent rushing wind. Hey, I live in central Illinois. I've been in my basement before when tornadoes are flying about. I know what violent wind is like. Can you imagine what that was like? And I don't think there's a little flicker, you know, like a, like a cigarette lighter or something. I mean, I think Holy Ghost comes in power, right? I can just imagine what those flames look like that rested on these people. But that birthed the church. That birthed the church. They went out and they started speaking in all these languages. And for the, for, for the festival that was going on, there were Jews from all over the known world, from different countries. They all spoke different languages. And they're hearing all these guys, these unlearned men, and they're talking in their language and they're talking about Christ. And, and the church blew up that day. 3,000 people in one day, it blew up. It just grew amazingly. And that was the beginning of the church. The first part of the church era was how it was birthed in power of the Holy Spirit. When we look in Acts 6, we see the second part where we see we start to get some organization with the church. And, and in fact, what it was talking about was that there were widows of Greek-speaking Jews who were in Jerusalem. And someone had to take care of them and the, and, and the, the apostles couldn't do it. So they appointed deacons. So now you see them start forming some kind of church structure. The church is getting organized in Jerusalem, and we see that happen. And in the seventh chapter of Acts, we see the next part of this church era, and that's persecution. Now, I want to be clear, okay? Um, Peter, John, the other apostles, you know, they had already been threatened before. They had been in prison. They had been flogged, and they just went back out and kept preaching the gospel. They were put in a cell, and God got them out, and the cell doors were still shut. I mean, they were being persecuted, but in the seventh chapter of Acts, things take a, a really um, sinister turn. There's a man named Stephen, 
And he's a man full of the Holy Ghost. And he's preaching. And some Jews arrest him and say, don't do that. And they, they, they couldn't get him to recant. In fact, he kept pressing. He kept pressing, talking to them about his Christ, his Jesus. And they stoned him on the spot. They stoned him on the spot. He became the first martyr. And then the Bible says a persecution broke out throughout Jerusalem so badly, so badly that all the Christians except the apostles fled the city. And where did they go? Judea and Samaria. Yeah, that's the second part of that command from Christ, wasn't it? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, you're not going out. Let's have some persecution. Now they're being his witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And we, did, we read some different stories about Philip and, and, and other people. And uh, we see how that persecution caused the church to scatter. And finally, the last piece of this era is transition. We start seeing something happen now in the church. Saul was a Pharisee. He went by the name Saul of, of, of Tarsus because that's where he was from. Separate himself from other Saul's. And he was very, very orthodox. He was holding the cloaks of the people that stoned Stephen. He was there. He, hold, he held their coats, and he, he approved of it. And now he's so zealous because he thinks these Christians are, they're not known by Christians yet, but he thinks these people are so wrong that he's going and grabbing them and throwing them into prison. And doing that in Jerusalem wasn't enough he decided to go to Damascus, Syria, because there was an enclave of Christians in Damascus, Syria. Remember what I just what I said earlier about Jews from all over the world had come to the festival and heard Christ preached in their language. Well, after the festival, they all went to where they came from. And that planted that seed of Christianity all the way through the Roman world. So there's this enclave of Christians in Damascus, Syria. And, and, and Saul's like, I'm going to go get them. I'm going to drag them back to Jerusalem. And on his way... He comes into a meeting with Jesus Christ, the living Savior. Christ strikes him down on the road to Damascus and talks to him, and, 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 and basically he gets converted right then. And Jesus tells him that he is going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. This dyed-in-the-wool, orthodox Jewish Pharisee is now called to go to Gentiles and bring him the gospel. Back in Jerusalem, Peter sees this vision that God gives him. And without going into all the details of vision, the basic meaning of the vision was that the gospel message is to be taking to, taken to the Gentiles, in specific to a man named Cornelius who lived in Caesarea. And he was a centurion in the Roman army. He did what God wanted him to do. He didn't want to at first. But he goes to see the centurion, this Gentile, and not only does Cornelius and his family accept Christ, everyone in his household, they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter said just the way they did on the day of Pentecost. These Gentiles receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And for a, a Jewish person to see that, wow, that was transformative. That was transformative. So what we see now is the church age is changing into something bigger. And the next era I want to talk about then is the missions era. That's the third era of the New Testament. In the gospel, we're, gospels, we're pretty much talking about Jesus, right? In the church age, we're pretty much talking about Peter. 
And now in the missions age, we're talking about Paul. When he got saved, Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul. So that's who we're talking about. Basically, Paul extends or expands the church into the Roman Empire during the next 20 years. This era can be divided. Usually it's divided by the missionary journeys that Paul took. That's how we look at the rest of the book of Acts. Is he, he had three missionary journeys. And then the fourth piece we're going to look at is when Paul was finally captured and he was tried and he was imprisoned and he was sent to Rome. There are three missionary journeys that Paul went on. Um, Antioch was his home base. Antioch is a city that is, um, I'm trying to think, I think it is about 300 miles, I believe, from Jerusalem. 300 miles. So if you think about people on foot, if you can do 20 miles a day, it'd take you 15 days just to get there. But that was his, that was his, his base, base home was in Antioch. Interestingly enough, it was Antioch, the Bible says, that the disciples were first called Christians. So when we think about the birthplace of the church being Jerusalem, we think the birthplace of missions to be Antioch. So his first trip, what Paul did was his first trip, he went north from Antioch up into Galatia. And Galatia was a region. It's not one city. It was a region. And he spent two years up in Galatia going to different churches up there. And uh, it was very encouraging, very encouraging work. And he came back home to Antioch. It says he was at Antioch. He was back home for quite a while. And some guys from Jerusalem came. And these people from Jerusalem came and said, they're preaching, they're saying, you cannot be saved unless you obey the law of Moses, unless men are circumcised, unless you follow the Mosaic laws. And, And Paul, with his friend Barnabas, who'd gone with him and seen all these Gentiles get saved, they are riled up. And they got a party together, and they all went down to Jerusalem. And they met with Peter and James and John and, and, and the other church leaders. And, and they had a big conference there. And this conference is, is very critical to our understanding of the growth of Christianity among Gentiles. Because that was when they all got together and decided, no, nah, this is wrong. To be a follower of Christ, you do not have to follow all the Jewish laws. You do not have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the, the, the rules of the synagogue. No. And they just laid out a couple of very basic things that they thought they should do. And, and Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch. They were pretty satisfied. And, and it wasn't long then. I mean, they feel kind of justified now in their mission, you know, to the Gentiles. They go off on their second mission. And they go around to the same places again in Galatia. And, and, and then they wanted to go into Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And, and, and Paul had a vision of a guy in Greece, and Macedonius had come to us, and he just knew the Spirit was telling him that. So, so Paul goes into Macedonia, or Greece, if you, if, if you think, think of that part of the world, and he, he went to a lot of places that you may recognize these names, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. He, he, spent, he spent three years preaching the gospel in Greece now, and then he came back to Antioch. And then finally, um, he goes on one more trip. This is his third trip. Paul goes off on his third missionary trip, and, and he goes back to the same places. He goes back to visit people in Galatia and visit places in Greece. And, and then he finally is able to go to Asia Minor. 
You know, you think of some towns like Ephesus, that rings a bell. If you think of any of the churches from Revelation, those are all in Asia Minor. And finally, he goes to those places. And, and when he's done with this last trip, even though people told him, don't go to Jerusalem because they'll kill you, Paul goes to Jerusalem. And he gets in town and he's in the temple and they arrest him, and there's about a riot going on. They want to kill him. The Jews want to kill him, and the Romans come down with, with, with horses and soldiers, and they drag him out, and they, they save his life. And, and basically, for safety's sake, they send him up to Caesarea, which is a beautiful city on the, on the Mediterranean Sea, and there was a big Roman garrison there. And he was there for two years to be tried for a crime that they couldn't even identify. You know, the first governor tried him and couldn't find anything wrong, but he, he wanted to make the Jews happy, so he didn't let him go. And a couple of years later, a new governor comes, and, and he says, well, why don't you go back to Jerusalem to face your accusers? And at that point, Paul just said, hang on, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. He knew if he went back to Jerusalem, they'd kill him. So that's how Paul ends up going from, from Caesarea to, to Rome. In the last two verses in the book of Acts, it says, talking about Rome, it says, He lived there two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is the last that we hear of him in the narrative of the Bible, the direct narrative. I mean, we piece things together from what we read in some of the letters and stuff. Um, It's widely believed that Paul was released after those two years. It's about 62 A.D., um, but in 64 A.D., something happened, something in history happened. Rome burned, if you remember that from history. Nero was the emperor, and Rome burned. And Nero, looking for a scapegoat, blamed the Christians. And he went on a rampage against Christians, a rampage. And he was burning Christians. And it was during that time that Paul was re-imprisoned, and he was executed. And it was during that same time that Peter was also arrested. And, and church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the manner of his Lord. So that's the era. That's the era from, from gospel, church age, to mission age of, of the New Testament. I want to talk to you real briefly about the organization of the books in the New Testament. We talked about two weeks ago the organization of the books in the Old Testament. The books in the New Testament can be divided into five sections, at least how we're looking at them today. We're going to look at five sections. Gospel, history, Pauline letters, general letters, and revelation. So, as I said earlier, when we were talking about the gospel era, the gospels are the books that actually tell the story of Christ. They're biographical. Some people lump them in with history, but... But actually, these are biographical books. They're biographical writings. Um, They're also thematic portraits. Think of a series of portraits of Jesus' life that place, for example, as I mentioned earlier, very little emphasis on his early life and a great emphasis on the last week of his life. They tend to follow the chronology of his life, but not strictly. And not all the Gospels cover the same events. Let me give you an example of some of the difference. Let's just think about the birth story of Jesus, okay? Just the birth story. In Matthew, Matthew's telling the story. He starts with the genealogy of Jesus. He's starting with Abraham, 
and he talks about the genealogy all the way up to Joseph. And um, then he, he jumps right into Mary being with child of the Holy Spirit and Joseph finding out and, you know, an angel coming to Joseph and saying it's okay. And, and, and then it basically just says Mary had the baby. She had the baby. Um, and then it jumps into the story of the Magi or the wise men. And that's where we see the story of the Magi who had seen stuff in the skies. So they headed to Jerusalem. They understood a king was there. And, and of course, Herod found out and wanted to know when they saw these things in the sky. And, and uh, where was this baby supposed to be? And, and he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the children two years and under and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus left, and, and, and then they eventually returned to Nazareth. So that's the part that Matthew talks about with the birth story. Book of Mark, nothing. Mark doesn't share anything about the birth story. He just starts his story with John the Baptist, starts talking about John the Baptist. Luke is where we hear a lot of the stories that we celebrate at Christmas time. You know, Luke backs it up. Luke, you know, Luke was a very meticulous historian. Very mystic- And I think Pastor Mark is maybe going to talk about Luke in the book of Acts next week a little bit. But he starts his story talking about the parents of John the Baptist. Um, Elizabeth, you know, being Mary's cousin. And um, he's talking about um, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah, and, and how, how an angel came. Uh, actually, he, he names him, said it was Gabriel. Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, you're, you know, Elizabeth's going to have a child, and, you know, Mary comes and visits them. An angel appeared, the same angel, Gabriel, appeared to Mary and told Mary the same thing. That's where we see the Magnificat, Mary's song. You know, my soul doth magnify the Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful song that we see in Luke. And, and, and then, it, then it talks about the birth of John the Baptist, and then back to Jesus, okay? Starts talking about the census the Caesar had had proclaimed the census, and Mary and Joseph came down from, from Nazareth, and then it said Jesus was born and placed in a manger. Um, talks about the angels and the shepherds. That comes from the Luke account. And the Luke account then also talks about when they took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, which was about five miles away. They took him there on his eighth day. So the last gospel is John. John does not tell the story of the physical birth of Jesus at all, but he talks about it more in existential terms. And I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Oh, I, I just think it's beautiful. He, was, he, though, he, he made the world, and though he was in the world, they, they, they did not know him. I mean, it's just beautiful. But, but see, it's not from the nativity story aspect. It's more about the theology of the incarnation, of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So all four, just, just if I look at one aspect of Jesus' story, all four Gospels tell them differently. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. Have you heard that word before, the synoptic gospels? And it's called that because they share many similar stories. Uh, The sequencing is similar, and and a lot of the wording is also very, very similar. And sometimes the wording is exactly the same. That is, they share very similar synopsis. So they're called the synoptic gospels. Now, the content of John, on the other hand, is vastly different 
from the other three Gospels. There are stories in John that aren't in the others. Um, things are sequenced differently, um, so it's significantly different from the others. And an interesting thing, if you harmonize all the Gospels into one story, you take all these pieces from these four books and you combine them uh, chronologically into one story. What I've read, and I had not done this, so I guess that's a disclaimer right now, is that if you put them together, only about 50, 50 days of Jesus' ministry are dealt with. 50 days of his ministry are mentioned. Wow. And I want to point out the recording of those 50 days has changed civilization for the last 2,000 years. It's pretty impressive. Quickly, the next group of books is a book, History. And as I said, sometimes people will group the Gospels into history, but I do like to look at them more as biographical. Acts is is strictly a history book, and this is the second part of a two-part volume that Luke wrote. It was his orderly account for a man um, he referred to as Theophilus, or most excellent Theophilus is what he says in, in the book of Luke, so that he could know the certainty of the things he had been taught. This is the only recording we have of what took place after the ascension, the book of Acts. It's the only recording that we have of this. The next group is called the Pauline letters. Pauline letters because they were written by Paul. Now, there are two types of Pauline letters, and we break these down organizationally as well. Um, The first is a group of letters that Paul wrote to churches, specifically to churches, and they're named based on the cities where these churches resided. The first one is Romans, the church in Rome. The book of Romans is heavily doctrinal, and it's the most complete doctrine of salvation by grace through faith that you're going to find in the Bible. In fact, if you ever doubt how intelligent Paul was, oh my lands, read the book of Romans. It is written at a very high scholarly level. You know, you, you hear things like the newspaper is written at a fourth grade level and that sort of thing. I feel like the book of Romans is written at like the second year grad school level. I mean, Paul just lays it out so amazingly. That's what Romans is about. First and second Corinthians, that was to the church that was in Corinth. Now, Corinth was in Greece, so that's kind of a Greek culture. It's a little different than Palestine, even a little different than, than a Roman culture. Um, these, both of these letters are heavily practical. They deal with um, a lot of specific problems that were taking place in, in the Corinthian church. Um, there's a book of Galatians. Galatians was written, remember I told you that first missionary journey Paul went to Galatia? That wasn't a city. That was a region. And the book of Galatians is written to churches, not church, churches who are in this area of Galatia. It was written to some of Paul's very first converts. And it, it's, it's laser-focused on a, a refutal of legalism. Remember I told you these guys, after he came back from that journey, came down from Jerusalem, said, no, you got to do this, got to do this, you got to be circumcised, you got to follow the Mosaic laws. Well, that's what was happening in Galatia. There were Judaizers there. And something interesting about this letter is, is Paul often starts his letters with, you know, I think about you always, I give thanks because of this, and I pray for this. And, you know, he always has these flowery intros to his letters. The book of Galatians, he gets on it. 
he is ticked, and he just gets right at it with these guys. And he lays out his credentials, says, listen here, I'm an apostle, not by man, I'm apostle by Jesus Christ. And he lays out his credentials, and he says, who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? And, and uh, boy, the tone of it is just so much different than his others. And I just realize I'm spending way too much time on one letter, aren't I? Um, moving on, Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. And at at some point in time, Timothy was the pastor there. At some point in time. It deals with the believer's position in Christ. Um, Philippians was the church of Philippi. And um, if you may remember from the book of Acts, Paul got to spend a little time in a prison there. That was a rough town. And it's a warm letter of joy despite trials. Uh, Colossians was written to the church of Colossae eminence of Christ is its theme. And then First and, Thess- and Second Thessalonians um, to the church at Thessalonica. These are very personal letters dealing with issues in the Thessalonian church. And it also includes prophecy. Uh, uh, prophesying. It talks a lot about um, apocalyptic topics. Um, a lot of people believe that, that First Thessalonians was the very first letter that Paul wrote. Some people feel that Galatians was the very first letter that Paul wrote. And, and they try to piece that together with how it lines up with things in Acts. But I'm just throwing that out there. And and then the other type of Pauline letters are the ones that he wrote to individuals. Now, three of these letters were written to pastors, and they're actually called the pastoral letters. That's first and second, Timothy. And, and Titus. Those were written to pastors of a church. Like I said, Timothy at that time was in Ephesus. He was a pastor there. Um, they talk, he, he talks about a lot of um, church issues in First Timothy and in Titus. talks about a lot of church issues. Something interesting about Second Timothy. You know, I told you that, that, that after Rome burned, that, that Nero went on this rampage and, you know, Paul was arrested again and then he was executed that time. Second Timothy was written um, in that second imprisonment. And, and when you read that with this understanding, this was his last letter he wrote that we have recorded, and you read that letter, you can tell it's got a different feel than his other letters. You know, he's, he's run the race, he's fought the good fight, there's a crown of, in store for him, and, and you get this feeling from it that he knows I'm not going to be released this time. But understanding where this falls in history helps you to interpret that, interpret and receive the things that he's talking about. And, and there was one other letter that Paul had written to an individual, and that was the book of Philemon, which is really different from all other books in the New Testament or, or the Bible. Philemon was written to a slave owner, and it's urging him to give lenient treatment to a runaway slave who became a Christian and is going to come back. So it's kind of an interesting topic, but there's a lot of good things to be taken out of that book. And then there are what's called the general letters. Now, yeah, I've been calling these letters. Um, they're also commonly called epistles, and epistle means a letter. Epistles were not the wives of the apostles. Okay, that's an old, really bad joke, but I had to say it. Um, epistles are letters. So these are the general letters or the general epistles, and they were written by individuals to broader audience is how they were written. Um, They're usually named according to their authorship, except for the first one, which is Hebrews. And a lot of people think maybe Paul wrote it, and it never says that, but they try to pick up on clues on writing style. Basically, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but Hebrews is heavenly doctrinal. Um, It draws largely on the Old Testament, 
and it teaches New Testament truths by drawing on the Old Testament. It's definitely written to a Jewish audience. I mean, you can tell by the way the writer pulls from the Old Testament. Um, James is an uh, incisive, practical treatment of the outworking of Christian faith in everyday life. James was written at a time when there was a lot of stirring going on in Palestine. The zealots were rising up. There was a lot of class inequality. You had the rich landowners that were affiliated with the Romans, and you had um, the, the zealots who were trying to cause trouble. And, and, and James deals with a lot of those things in here. He deals with a lot of those aspects. Um, and then there's First and Second Peter, um, written to believers in Asia and Galatia, and and it does deal with with response to suffering and opposition. And there there are the three letters that are attributed to John, First, Second, and Third John, and and finally Jude, which is a very very short book. Um, then the last um, section of the New Testament is Revelation, and I give Revelation a section all its own. It is unique not only in the New Testament, but it's unique throughout the entire Bible. John, whom many assume, most people assume to be the same John from, you know, as the, the Apostle John, the author of the fourth gospel, um, was imprisoned, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he was on the Isle of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea, if you, if, if you look at Israel coming up here and around through Turkey and Greece, that's what's in the middle there. So it was... Uh, you like my maths? I'm sorry. I should have had a whiteboard or something. Um, but he, he was imprisoned on this island, and it says he received the revelation of Jesus Christ and was instructed to write down what he saw. Now, it, this could be considered a letter in some sense, kind of a stretch, because, I mean, if you think of Luke and Acts being written to Theophilus, the book of Revelation, it says, was addressed to the to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Philadelphia, um, Smyrna, Ephesus. I had to look at the list. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. But it, it, we basically look at it as a standalone. It, it's, it's prophetical, and it is apocalyptic, and it deals with the nature events and chronology of the end times. So that's the fifth category of books. It's very own. So the last thing I want to do real quickly is to show you how these books fit against this era we talked about, this timeline of the New Testament. So if we can go to the next slide, first of all, um, the books of the gospel are really easy, right? The gospels go to the gospel era. I wish they were all that easy, but they're not. The second one we want to look at is the book of Acts. Book of Acts, as we talked about, when, you know, I was telling you the scriptural references when we went through those errors, is, is split. The first 12 chapters talk about um, the church era, and basically the next 16 chapters talk about the missions era. Then, if we want to look at um, the epistles, these are the only epistles, um, both Thessalonians, both of the Corinthians, Galatians, um, and Romans, and, and James. These are the only ones that were actually... They actually took place during the time of the book of Acts. They were written and delivered in that time frame. These are the only ones. Um, you see um, five, I'm sorry, six of those were Paul's, and then there, there's one of James. And, and, and don't know if you know, but James was eventually murdered in Jerusalem outside of the temple. He, he was murdered there. So to go further, if we look at the rest of the epistles, they all happen 
later after it's in the missions era but it's after the book of acts is completed remember the acts the book of acts finished with paul going to rome and he's in prison for two years that's how it ends so these next four if you look at them ephesians philippians um, colossians and philemon these are called the prison letters or the prison epistles these were written during that two-year period when he was in, under house arrest in Rome. And if we go beyond these now, we see after he is released, we see Timothy, Titus were written during the time as expected be- between his, his release and his re-imprisonment. And then as I mentioned, Second Timothy, he is now in prison again, and he, you know, he knows he's going to die you read, you know, you read Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians, and even though he wrote it from prison, there's kind of like a, an optimism in those letters. You know, it's, I mean, I think if I was in prison, even if it's house arrest, I know he wasn't in a hole in the ground, but still, he was in prison, right? And I think of how I would write, and yet Paul had this optimism. It's like he knew his God was bigger than this. And then you read Second Timothy, and you know, he still has faith in God. That's not, that's not changed at all. But, you know, you can just kind of tell he knows this is it. And then you look at, the, um, finally, the last, ver- the last uh, if you want to put the last books up there, please, Nathan. Um, Hebrews and, and, and Jude were written closer to that same time period. And then we, we look out maybe another 20 to 30 years, and John in his old age, you know, we think this is about 90 A.D., John wrote his epistles, and actually he, he wrote his, his gospel about that time, and, and that's when the revelation of Jesus was given to him, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So that's how those all fill out. Has it seemed like drinking from a fire hose tonight? I hope not. And, and I don't expect us to remember everything, but I think it's so important as we study the New Testament that we understand the big picture. We understand this story from angels talking about the birth of Christ all the way to Paul being in prison and, and all the things that happened in that six-year period. It's very important for us to understand how the scriptures were written and, and, the, and organized and that sort of thing. And the last thing I want to do is just give you this recommendation, this book. I do not study the New Testament without this book open. This is called the IVP Bible Background Commentary for the New Testament by, by a by a Craig Keener. This has cultural context information for every single uh, verse, every verse in the New Testament. It puts it in the context of what was going on, of, of, of the nuances of the language, of how these things were received by, by first century Christians. I honestly... When I'm studying, I, I don't mean just sitting down. I'm just going to read because I, I just feel like reading the Bible. But when I'm studying, um, this is how I do my deep dive. I always do it with this book. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in that type of thing, studying the New Testament to that level, I encourage you to, to pick this up. Let's pray, and then we can be dismissed. Father, I just pray that you'd help us to be students of your word and to, just to love it, God. Lord, David... David delighted in your word. He delighted in it. He meditated on it day and night. It was such a joy to him, Lord. He consumed it. And I pray, God, that's what I pray for us, that we would just love your word. Let us consume it. Let us delight in it. 
and, and meditate on it. Let it just saturate our minds and our spirits, Lord. Help us to, to understand these things that we've learned tonight. And, and Lord, I just pray that as, as we go through the last week of this, Lord, wrapping up next week, it, that you would just reveal things to us, Lord, about your word and reveal things to us about your New Testament. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. Grace and peace.